Hi, Amani. Hey, Leila. How's it going? Good. I This is my first conversation with you, which is wild, but I'm really excited to chat with you because you are a tech founder. Yeah, no. It's kind of wild. This is our first conversation. It's mind-blowing. Like, you are a hijabi tech founder like that. There are very, very, very few of us. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes you, you're just so into building what you're building and, and it's just hard to uh, take the time and space and spaciousness to just like meet other founders. It's, it's still a constant challenge for me today. Oh, yeah. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I am antisocial. But um, anyway, so why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Emani Kalawi. I am the co-founder and chief operating officer of launchgood.com. And um, let's talk about that. So LaunchGood is effectively GoFundMe, but for Muslims, right? Yes. That's the simplest way to explain it <laughs> analogy-wise. To give it like Kickstarter meets GoFundMe for 1.8 billion Muslims worldwide. It's interesting. I had the Muzmatch founder on recently too, who serves the Muslim market like as a niche market and the business has been blowing up and there's just definitely a lot a lot of people with needs, right? So yep. it's it's cool to see you do what you're doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there there's this term we use in this space, and it, it's it's becoming more popular. Um, and we talk about uh, what we call gummies. I don't know if you've heard of that term before. No. Uh, and it really stands for people like you and me, global urban Muslims who are educated and English speaking. And we believe there's millions of them. Uh, it's kind of that uh, no one's really thinking about this community. No one's really building products for the Muslim community that align with their values and needs. And so uh, really launch good is just one of many like Muzmatch and others that are saying, hey, our community deserves to be heard and we deserve to build products uh, that meet our needs. Uh, and so it's, it's really been incredible. I think it's it's beginning to really explode uh, like the head and tail is there, but it's still a very, I would say, um, nascent space. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that because even as I'm thinking of companies in the U.S. that like specifically serve Muslims, it is, it's still small, right? It's like so especially small. tech companies, it's still small. Yeah. So, so where were you born, Amani? So I was born in Detroit, uh, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. So for those who are Michigan fans, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Everybody fr from Michigan ends up back in Michigan, just a random observation that's kind of useless. <laughs> um, people, Michiganders love Michigan. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's an amazing place to grow up. I mean, I grew up on the, between Detroit and Hamtramck. And if you know anything about Hamtramck, it's like 40% foreign born. So, you know, it just was such an interesting place to grow up. Yeah, Yemeni and Polish, right? Yemeni, Polish, Bengali, that's exactly it. Hmm. Yeah, I've had Yemeni food in Hamtramck. It's amazing. So you grow up in Detroit and you, um, and then what? Like, where did you go to school? Kind of like, how did you get here? <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, you know, to get here, it really starts with the story of my parents. So my parents immigrated from Syria in the 80s, uh, got settled here. Well, they weren't they weren't really sure if they wanted to settle. I mean, like most immigrant families, like first kid comes along, second kid comes along. You know, in our case, seven kids later, it's like, where are you going to go? And so at some point, my parents had to make a decision. Do we build here? Or do we build there? Like, where is home? Where is community? Um, and so we, uh, after a lot of pressure from family, my parents decided to move back to Syria. We did the whole trial. We lived there for a year. That's like a whole nother podcast uh, of, of living there for a year. 
And then uh, we said, okay, it's not so bad. The kids can do this. And so my parents came back to the U.S. We packed our bags and we were ready to take a one-way flight back to Syria. But the day of our one-way flight back to Syria was actually 9-11. Oof. And so they just changed the whole course of, of everything for us. And, you know, my family didn't feel comfortable splitting. You know, part of the family was traveling. Part of us were staying here. And so we, we you know, we stayed in Detroit. I ended up going to school at uh, the uh, Wayne State University. I actually studied social work. That's, that's the background I have uh, and the background I'm coming from. And at that point, you're in Detroit. I guess the whole – that is – a really kind of pivotal moment for the landscape of Muslims in America. I was I was just listening to a podcast, a crime podcast, because that's obviously what I do when I relax. Some wildly, yes, because I'm just an average millennial. And actually, it was about there was one homicide in New York City on 9/11, and it was a Polish guy who looked Arab, mm. wearing camouflage, so they assumed it was a hate crime. Like, mm. and that that to me, they don't consider the the deaths in the attacks as homicide because those are terrorist deaths so they're categorized as something different but everybody in the city was too busy for homicide mm-hmm. I guess except for this this one guy got killed and they think it might be a hate crime and so like it was just a time in which everything changed I think it's one of those moments where every American Muslim and probably every American honestly knows where they were when they heard mm-hmm. and remembers viscerally the feelings and so your whole yeah. life was about to change but didn't it just changed in a totally different way yeah you know it's crazy i remember that day um we actually were packing our bags uh and we didn't even have a tv because like we had unplugged our tv because we were traveling you know we're leaving the country and we called up a friend to borrow their scale so we can weigh their bags and they're like you're not going anywhere like go plug your tv back in and see what's happening and i just remember that i remember waking up and everybody like my whole family was like just shocked around the tv um, and then, you know, I, I was pretty young. I mean, I was in, I'm trying to remember, I think I was either going to third grade or going to fourth grade, probably fourth grade. And I don't remember much after that, but I do remember feeling a sense of, uh, just privilege growing up in the U S in the sense that I could be in Syria. I could be, you know, I just have more opportunities here than I, any of my cousins would. And I remember feeling this strong sense of like, I want to give back. Uh, and just as I began to just study more Islamic thought, so much of social work felt like it mirrored uh, what I was taught. And uh, that really, that was my first forte into social work. I, I knew I wanted to make a difference. I knew I wanted to give back. And so I, I, I got inspired to study social work, which ultimately took me to where I am today. I mean, I see this as a form of social work, but it, the to help kind of bridge the gap because people are like, what social work tech, like how do, how do, you know, how do those two come together? Right. Like having a non-technical background sort of, you know, informally, um, how did you kind of get to that today? And really for me, um, when I was a social worker, I was, I was really into macro social work. So this idea of, uh, can I make change on a community level? Uh, sometimes there's, uh, micro social work, right. It's one-on-one individual counseling, there's meso, you, you social work within a group, and there's macro. Like, what are the systems that we can change to make everybody's lives better, easier, et cetera? And so I began to do macro social work. It took me into youth work. So I was constantly, as a grassroots fundraiser, I was constantly uh, fundraising and organizing. And those of you who know who are in the space, uh, when you're in the grassroots space, you're constantly fundraising. And I, I, that's when I first discovered crowdfunding. This was 10 years ago. There weren't many Muslims in the space. Um, and I had met my co-founder, 
uh, Chris. Uh, he was one of the first Muslims on Kickstarter. He had launched a film called Bilal Stand. You know, we joke that I was one of the first Muslims on Indiegogo. Of course, we don't know, right? Um, and we connected and we stayed in touch. And, you know, years later, a couple of years later, this idea of launch good was birthed, where we started to realize, okay, the Muslim community is always fundraising. Uh, there's 1.8 billion Muslims. There's over 400 niche crowdfunding sites at the time. Now there's much less. What if we could build a platform to, one, tangibly help our community raise funds for projects and ideas they care about, but two, each campaign then becomes a chapter in this global story because of who we are. Because we just felt like we desperately needed it, like we lost our mojo and there was just this sense of we're so tired defending, we just want to build. And really LaunchKid was this project of let's build, like we're all craving uh, to be able to write our own narrative. So the two of you met and you have a third co-founder too. How did he kind of enter the picture? Yeah, Omar was involved. Um, we all had our different entry points. Uh, and by the way, I love having co-founders and there's a lot of solo founders out there. It's really uh, long. And- I don't know how. <laughs> Sounds impossible, honestly. My co-founders are, they're an extension of my family. Yeah, it's really, really tough. It's very lonely to run a company and to have co-founders. You know, there's a magic number. People say it's three. People say it's two. Maybe four is a little too much. Definitely don't want to have five. But uh, I met Omar because we had brought him on board to design the site and he just fell in love with it. And he did way more beyond what we had asked him to do. Mm. And just like he just embodied the ethos of what we were about. And so it felt like a no brainer. And then it was the three Mustakirs at that point, me, Chris and Omar. Uh, and together uh, we took the jump to work on Lunch Good. You know, it's wild. So you guys are three founders. We actually are four. We're the rare case. And you, like us, should not be in existence technically. Like one of you should be gone statistically by this point, right? <laughs> Same with us. Like one, if not more, should be gone statistically at this point. And um, it, it's, and of course, like our CEO is black. Like I wear hijab. Seems like you've got a bit of a mix on your team too. So technology, the the rise of cloud-based software. Yes, technology has been around forever. Software has been around forever, but a lot of these new consumer softwares like are, are not that old, right? So the ecosystem is fairly limited in scope in terms of how people look. And now we're starting to see a little bit more diversity, but not really. So that's why like I'm stunned. I'm stunned, but I'm not. that. I'm stunned that literally I can count the hijabi founders on my hand. And that's not to say anything about non-hijabi founders, but my experience is it's different, right? You're, you are fighting a different identity along with trying to prove that you are good at technology. Like I am a leader in design, yeah. but often people want to see me as an advocate for Muslim women. That's yeah. fine. I advocate, but I, I don't have anything to say. I, maybe I have something to say, but like I have a lot more to say about how to design a really damn good product. Yeah. Um, and, and I think yeah. that that's kind of just interesting. Yeah. So like I, I'm stunned, but I'm also not that surprised that you're in this small cohort of people. <laughs> like, yeah. And you're facing two fronts, right? Like, because within the Muslim community, there there's this um, spirit of entrepreneurship that needs to happen, right? And then within the outside the Muslim community, like when we first tried to raise funds, we were actually terrible at our own fundraising. No one was ready to invest. Huh. It was really tough for us. Um, and part of it was, I, I believe, like people weren't ready to take a bet on Muslims, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, we came back the second year and people were like, wow, like you're still alive. That's so cool. <laughs> like that's impressive. And we're like, wait, what? And so we actually ended up bootstrapping LaunchGrid with just $10,000 and we grew it to where we are today. So there's there's these different kind of threads of like bootstrapping a company, which today is, is, is really incredibly hard and still is. Most, you know, most startups tend to get VC funded 
and it's it's there's a big kind of debate about this, right? There's like a school of thought about VC funding, and there's a school of thought about bootstrapping it. Um, we're big fans of bootstrapping, and then there's this challenge of within the Muslim community building legitimacy, uh, building something that our community wants, and so you've got those sort of two fronts, right? That you you know you you have to face um, while building this and 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 just managing that. It's wild and incredible that you bootstrap the business. And for those listening, like the way that venture works is when you hear a company has a billion dollar venture, like they raised a billion or they're worth a billion dollars, according to a venture capitalist, it doesn't mean they're making a billion dollars in revenue. It means the venture capitalist is taking a bet. Maybe they're making 100,000 in revenue, maybe 100 million in revenue or 200 million in revenue. And the venture capitalist is pretty much saying, I'm going to put a piece of my money in for your company now based on what I think it'll be worth after this injection of money and a little bit of time. So it's a very different model from bootstrapping, which means you can only grow as fast as you have resources. So 10,000 bucks means you had to really generate revenue before you could build a team. And how how big is your team now? So we're at 100 people now, actually. Mixed incredible. That's part-time. You know, it was tough. We had to, we couldn't actually pay ourselves for four years. So LaunchCode's eight years old. uh, And so much of the success you you see today is actually the last two and a half years. Hmm. Uh, But the first four years were pretty brutal in that I think the first year I took a salary was probably year three, but it was like a very, very part-time salary. Um, And then year four, I was actually able to, like that was the first year that we were able to pay ourselves as founders. Um, And that's tough. Like not everybody, that's just the bootstrap way. It's just really, really tough. You have to, you have to keep building it and, and, and to try to kind of sustain it until you get to that tipping point where you can bring others along. And that's why I think it's awesome that all three founders are still there because like really the chances of somebody leaving were high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's had truly very high. <laughs> yeah, of course. And we've, you know, we've had our conflicts. It's like a marriage in many ways. You know, how you, I often tell people um, uh, like, for example, so much, especially when you're bootstrapped, so your resources are tight, right? And so you have a set amount of money that you have to decide on how to invest in, within your own company. Where does it go? What resources you, you, you use? And a lot of times the way you're raised around money actually impacts the decisions you make, mm-hmm. right? And just being aware of that, right? Like how you decide how much to invest, how much bets you take. Are you more frugal? Are you less frugal? You know, all those things, you know, come up in those relationships, uh, you know, with couples, let alone co-founders, let alone anybody who's sharing your resource together. Yeah. And, and it's pretty amazing too. Like you noted, um, you all have to be careful in terms of how you spend but also you're competing for talent, the same talent that companies like Google are competing yeah. for, right? Yeah. That can spend a lot and that can offer a lot of perks. And how do you, how have you guys managed talent acquisition and retention? Yeah, it's a great question because you're absolutely right. We're kind of in the spot where um, within the Muslim community, uh, LaunchGood is much more competitive in terms of many of the nonprofits there when you think mm-hmm. about the social good space. But then we're not as competitive as like Google or Facebook, right? But you, you need that talent. You need that talent from just a tech and product standpoint. And the way we've really managed it, for the most part, I would say, is just uh, people are just so bought on the vision, right? A mm-hmm. lot of people think LaunchGood is just a crowdfunding platform. But the way we see it, we're an inspiration platform. We're not just fundraising. Our goal is really to inspire Muslims to be unapologetically Muslim mm-hmm. and to really do incredible work across the world, right? We've just, we believe we have incredible values to share. And LaunchCode is a chance to share those values in action. And so for many people, it's cool to be able to work at a place where you've got the best, most cutting edge 
in terms of how work is being done, whether it's the tools you use to the way we think about work, right? That's very uh, sort of remiss or, or very reflective, I would say, of some of the best tech companies out there. But also you get to have your faith in action. And I think for a lot of people, that calling is strong enough to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take a bit of a pay cut to be part of something that I may not have a chance to build with again. Hmm. And how did you decide amongst founders what your roles would be and who would be CEO? Yeah, you know, it, it happened quite naturally. And we, we come and revisit these conversations every now and then. Um, in the beginning, everybody does everything. You're just all yeah. generalists, right? Like your first five, 20 people you bring on board, they're all generalists because there's no structure. You, you just need like all-purpose smart people that just support wherever you can. Over time, we begin to realize, okay, Omar has really got design down. Uh, Chris has a great business mindset when it comes to the outreach, the revenue, uh, the thought process there. Amani has a, a better understanding of ops. And so naturally, like we didn't necessarily have the terminology to explain the roles we do now. We just begin over time to sort of divide and conquer. Um, and there's nothing we haven't done. Like all of us have done customer support to, to the sales side, to outreach, uh, to speaking engagements, you name it. I would say now within the last two years, our roles have sort of gelled where I handle a lot of the ops side. Chris handles a lot of the growth teams uh, and Omar thinks a lot about the design and product side. So it, it, it was just an honest observation of who's good at what. Now, of course, what I tell a lot of people who are starting companies, there is there could be what I'd say a gotcha at some point in your startup journey. And that's when you become a gap filler for too long. So what I mean mm. by that is, uh, you know, you're doing everything because you have to. At some point, you if you gap fill some roles that you don't like, there's parts of roles that you have to do that you don't like. And if you do that for too long, it kills your spirit. And I tell, I tell, you know, I tell a lot of founders, just watch out for that because mm. when it catches you, it's tough. It's really tough to get out of it. Mm. Um, and it's not till you have more resources and more people that you can hand off the parts that you don't like. But I know for me, like it really killed my spirit for about two years where I was just stretched thin, just doing things that I had outgrown a long time ago, but we just didn't have the right people to help <laughs> take it forward. That that resonates so much. You have no idea. And, and the funny thing is, is like effectively generalists become specialists over time. It's not like one day we're like, oh, we got tons of money. Everybody should become a specialist. Right. It happens over, honestly, like in the growth stages over probably a several year period. And some people realize it quick and start specializing and others don't. And they look back and they're like, wait, shoot, did my dream role, did I just like, my dream role pass me by because I've kind of been taking out the trash. But at the same time, one of our values is take out the trash, right? So, so it's like that fine line of walking the do what has to be done, but also don't lose sight of where you want to end up. And the thing about startups too is like what people who join startups only realize when they're in the trenches is often the org structure is being developed as the company grows, right? Yeah. So on day one, not many companies probably have a fully developed org chart of a 500-person company. Even though you're a 100-person company, people probably want to know where they would be when there's 500 people. And you're like, I haven't really gotten that far. Like, yeah. we're just managing the right now, but we promise, you know, we'll do good by you. Yeah, no, you know, that's been a lot of conversations with our team. We're at the stage where, you know, teams have gelled, right? But you still have this sort of trying to just figure out, okay, well, where do we collaborate? Where do we overlap? Who's the decision maker here, right? And, you know, in the early days, it was me, Chris, I'm out on a table and you know, that's it. And it was done. It was quick. Decisions were made and hmm. we knew exactly. And now you've kind of, as a team grows, 
having to shape and define that becomes so much more important. And half the time you're figuring it out for yourself too, right? Let alone the rest of the team. But it's, you know, it's part of those growth pains. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good growth pain. You know, it's incredible too, because you guys as a leadership team also have to figure out like, what, what kind of CEO do you want? Do you want a CEO who makes decisions with a little bit of counsel or a CEO who spends a lot of time listening and kind of empowers people to make decisions? And these are all the growing pains that people don't realize. And what kind of leadership team do you want? These are the growing pains people don't realize. Our, our team's right about the size of yours. We're about 100 people too. Um, I think you're slightly older than us in terms of age. But um, we we had a fast track because we, we we did venture. We've raised to date about twenty three million. Mm. Um, so it's interesting because I think a lot of the kind of things that we experience are in parallel. Right, right, literally. Yeah. Um, and so, at what point in the process were you like, we're doing this? Like we we've made it. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I would say when we when LaunchGood became a viable career option for, <laughs> for people. That's when I was like, all right, we made it. Well, mm -hmm. And even that's weird to say, because one of our values is to not be complacent, right? It's easy to be like, wow, like we survived. And we talk about our journey, like we've, you know, chronicled it for the team. It's like launch good 1.0 was about, do people even want this, right? Is there a product market fit? You know, launch good 2.0 was survive, right? Can, can we, can we expand on what we've built? Can we uh, have more products? Can we really take this to the next level? Launch could 3.0 thrive, right? We've become a viable career option. We're professionalizing things. We have an, you know, head of HR. Uh, we have a finance department, like all these things that you would be doing uh, that is a lot more formalized than just a, a scrappy startup. And now we're at that stage where it's launch good 4.0. Can we scale, right? Can we take that what we've been doing, what we've been building the last eight years and scale it to another level? Because right now we've raised a quarter billion to date in terms of fund for funds on the on the platform, uh, not launch good in terms of our, our VC funding or VC funding or funding for us. Uh, but this is really just collectively the platform, the, the campaigns on launch good have raised a quarter billion to date. And so for us, our next milestone is 1 billion. Hmm. And to get to 1 billion annually, that's going to be a whole different level in terms of how we run our team and how we scale and how we grow. But it also is really exciting because it puts us in the same league as our friends at GoFundMe uh, and other platforms. Hmm. And so for me, that's like, okay, next level, we made it if we get to that level of 1 billion annually. Hmm. And how do you, I mean, when you look at it operationally, is, does it effectively mean you pour money into marketing? Like I, 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 I can imagine like you guys are very much a consumer service. Isn't it isn't necessarily a SaaS platform where the engineering would dominate. And there's some companies where the obviously the engineering is important, but maybe the marketing plays a bigger role because ultimately your goal is a very consumer platform is to get in front of as many people as possible and convince Muslims to use LaunchGood instead of GoFundMe. Yeah, you know, we, we have this debate all the time. You know, are, are we more product focused or are we more outreach focused, right? In the sense of uh, our strategy. Uh, and and it's, it's sort of yes to both. If you have a great product that people love, it's a lot easier to go viral. People recommend it to their friends, right? You don't have to spend a marketing dollar. But at the same time, um, the way we grew was we didn't have the greatest product initially because it was so scrappy. Like we had $10,000. We paid some developers overseas to build a site. <laughs> It was horrible. Like the first campaign we launched, the website was so bad that when you would donate, the total number raised would actually go down instead of go up, <laughs> right? And so our product was effectively like, it was it was mediocre, but 
how we made up for it was that personal touch. Like we would coach every single campaign personally. Uh, Chris and I in the first early years of launch could probably coach the first 2000 campaigns ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of it was that outreach that, hey, this is the same community that we love and cherish and we're part of it and we want this for our community. And so it's, it's, it's a good question. I'd say we don't yet have the answer to that. That's actually something that we've been testing and, and, and really trying to figure out, okay, what is the way forward? We know what the goalpost looks like, but what strategy is going to take us there? We have a couple of hypotheses. We have a couple of kind of tests that we want to launch to, to see that. But at the moment, it's just really investing in both teams. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at your numbers and kind of scaling, like you've had 33,000 campaigns for a quarter billion, which probably means like if you're assuming the campaigns are on the same size, 100,000 campaigns is what you have to hit to get to your billion, right? Yep. So ultimately you just have, but people are, are not, actually, I think people are more comfortable with contributing to crowdsourcing sites. Like I'm in mom groups and whenever somebody I've never met before posts about like a child that died, I'm just like, here's 20 bucks. I don't know you, yeah. but just take it. Like whatever it'll do to help you during this horrible time, yeah. just take it, right? And and I think that's a common sentiment. Like I'm not a saint by any stretch of the imagination because sometimes I'll give random people 20 bucks. I think it's just like kind of culturally ingrained. Yep. This has just become a whole lot more normalized. Though I will say the one thing I do hate, and I don't know if Facebook makes it this way to compete, is credit card information, having to put it in every single time. And with yeah. some sites, yeah. I just can't seem to get around it. And that's that ends up being the thing that stops me. And I'm like, I'm a horrible person. I'm not giving yeah, this person friction, 20 bucks, right? but where the heck is my credit card? <laughs> yeah, no. And, and that's the case. I mean, you know, we're married to what's convenient, unfortunately, all of us. Right. And so it's like, oh, I have a good intention. It's just a follow through is just so hard right now. Right. While someone is doing a million things. But you, you hit on something, which is the sentiment that uh, just crowdfunding as a whole has become so much more acceptable. Um, and, you know, the industry's evolved a lot. But what we often find is that, especially when there's tragedies, uh, there's a sense of wanting to make a difference. There's a sense of wanting to take action on something, right? And what crowdfunding does is it just makes that so much easier to be able to say, hey, it doesn't matter how much I give, but it's more so about the emotional message of support that my uh, contribution shows and that's really what I think why people love the, the, the crowdfunding as a whole is because it, it allows you to show your support in that way in a tangible manner. And ha have people like when you look at your site, you see like stories of people who lost their spouses and raising $150,000, $200,000 for them. How has the community responded to you? Yeah, it's been great. I mean, we have a mixture of uh, personal campaigns. So someone passes away uh, raising funds, uh, for example, uh, for their family to support them financially or in other cases, just uh, in, in, in honor of their legacy uh, to uh, just uh, do good work in their name. And then you have humanitarian work and then you have campaigns that are more Kickstarter focused uh catering to the Muslim community. Overall, the sentiment has been very positive. In fact, the personal campaign segment feels like it's growing much faster hmm. uh, sometimes than the um, general humanitarian uh, response campaigns. Other than like, for example, when Afghanistan, like national tragedies happen like that or a hurricane, people definitely do respond, right? Hmm. But I think it speaks to uh, this idea that people love to give to something that feels so tangible right? And when you can see exactly who you're giving to, and you can see a face, you can see a name, it just hits in a different way than say a general crisis does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
no, definitely. And, and, um, your business model. So I know that right now that's kind of a hot topic. I know cause my mother is in the nonprofit space where she is an educator right. and she's a school. And my sister puts together these campaigns and I, I've heard my sister say like, oh yeah, you know, some are expensive, some are cheap. I don't know a whole lot about it. How do you make that decision and how, how do you guys develop your business model? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, the model has evolved actually as the space has evolved. So mm-hmm. when most crowdfunding platforms started, even I, I bet your sister, she's a teacher, she's probably using like donor, Donors Choose, which is actually one of the first crowdfunding platforms that ever existed. And they're just focused on education. A lot of these platforms started out by collecting a percentage of the funds raised. So typically it's about 5%. Right. But over time, what's happened, and, and this is our models also evolved to this as well. Most people have said, hey, we get that you need a percentage to run uh, your, your platform and the operational costs. And we get that it's justified, but we really want all the funds to go to the cause. We really want all the funds to be supported directly to the campaigns. And so what most platforms have launched, including ours, is just an option to tip us as a platform. Hmm. And that's actually, we switched to this model actually last Ramadan. There was a lot hmm. of like anxiety around it. Like, whoa, what if we like don't exist overnight? Like what happens, right? Because I do love that we did collect a percentage for the last seven years. Well, you're a COO. You can like project out finances. Absolutely. <laughs> like, but, now but, you suddenly are unpredictable. <laughs> but also, I think there's this other sentiment sometimes in our community that we expect things to be free, but we want the, oh, highest, definitely. We want the highest quality, right? Definitely. And so if, it was great to be able to, we were pretty firm about that. But as we grew and evolved, uh, it was very important for us to make sure that we're relevant to the Muslim community, we're relevant to everyone that we're serving. And so we did, you know, it wasn't a hasty decision. We did A-B testing. We made sure it made sense. And alhamdulillah, we switched in. And today it, it's it's working just as well for us. The, the difference has been minimal in terms of that tipping model. That's that's awesome, actually. And I, 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 if I were in your shoes, would have been just as nervous and just as anxious because businesses work off of predictability, right? Like if, if you still had a percentage and you said it's a billion dollars, you can predict where your business will be at a billion and what you can hire and so on and so forth. Um, so that's great. And for anybody who does not contribute, who's listening, it's time to start throwing that extra dollar in. Um, but uh, that's, that's what I figured would happen. Cause I think I, I, Facebook does giving Tuesday. And if I recall either on that day or usually I'm not sure they don't take a fee. And I, I like, remember that distinctly. I don't know if that's changed or if that's misinformation I'm spreading. Yeah. Yeah. The, Facebook does a match grant on giving Tuesday typically. Yep. And we know this because we do something similar because Facebook's match grant runs out so quickly. Five like, seconds. Yeah, exactly. My mom has me get up at 5 a.m. with a credit card. Five <laughs> seconds, straight up. Well, you got you to gotta be on launch good for Giving Tuesday because we Yeah, I think we, we got to move. We don't run out of money in five seconds. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I think it's time to move over. Yeah. Um, and, and how have you – like so ultimately what you're really trying to do is, is like I said, take the – GoFundMe people. Well, I guess there's two parts of the market. It's making the GoFundMe people launch good people. Then it's converting the skeptics. Hmm. Um, when it comes to your marketing strategy, where, where do you spend your time? Yeah. You know, it's it's a great question. Um, I usually when I um, do, um, I onboard new team members and I share more about our story. I, I like to share this example of a triangle when, we, when you first start um, you've got this kind of early adopters, right? They're very forgiving. Um, they don't care if your product isn't as great because they're just bought onto the vision and mission. And mm-hmm. you have this like next layer of folks that are, uh, I would say a little bit less forgiving. Like there's still a lot of benefit for them and what you have to offer. Right. 
Um, and then there's a sort of group that is like, doesn't know anything about you and uh, it has never even heard of you. And I still, you know, it's very humbling sometimes where you're like, you, you know, I'll, I'll be back in Michigan and like a couple neighbors down the street, like won't know anything about launch good. Right. And so I don't really actually think we've saturated or, or, or really um, uh, saturated the market when it comes to the Muslim community. And so our marketing strategy has really been to cross that uh, chasm in terms of just where our early adopters are, right? And those who've been using LaunchKit for some time and those who've like never heard of us. And that's been interesting just in terms of the outreach, whether it's working on some ambassador programs. But what I what we found in terms of our marketing strategy that seems to work best is just success breeds success. People mm-hmm. need to see successful campaigns. And when they see exciting campaigns that do well, then they're inspired to either start their own or reach out for us to help them start their own to be able to have that same level of success. And do you have a team that does that, like people who help people get campaigns up? We do, actually. Our whole, we have a whole community support team that just huh. focuses on uh, helping you make the most of our platform, finding out about certain features. And we've got a lot of cool things like Friday Givers Club, where every week 4,000 Muslims collectively come together and give 30,000 on a weekly basis. Mm one of the largest giving circles online to, hey, these are the prizes we have on Giving Tuesday. Here's how you can get an edge uh, to even here's some marketing packages. And this is how our marketing packages work to just even just the emotional support because crowdfunding is not hard, but it takes a lot emotionally to put yourself out there, right? Mm, yeah. To be able to have a coach from our team to just say, hey, here's how it works. Here's what to say. Here's how you do it. To just kind of push you and support you means a lot. And, and what is most of your team? Like, what's the makeup professionally of most of your team? The, I guess the largest, not most, but what is the largest type of hire? What is the largest type of hire? Mm, good question. Let's see. I would say our two biggest teams right now are marketing and probably what's really, what I would say is increasing is the software development team. Like we are making that shift towards more intense focus on our product. And how much of the like team focuses on how much of the focus, not the team, because I guess the team size would probably be different, is on mobile versus web. And what have you kind of found there? Yeah, mobile first all the time. I mean, we're, we're still making that transition. We have a lot of technical debt where we're trying to make sure that even just our campaign creation process is more mobile friendly. So, um, again, people are donating. A lot of people are donating uh, on mobile. Like that's still number one. Um, campaign creation still happens on uh, desktop more often. Uh, than mobile, but we hope to change that with some of the new sprints, uh, some of the new things that we're releasing in our sprints. Yeah. And I think like I I have yet to see Apple pay in any of the mobile solutions. And I think that's because Apple takes a chunk and then that kind of messes with the business model. Is that why? Yeah. You know, there's, there's other rules around Apple pay with crowdfunding. They don't always support it. And that Hmm. was something that when we were looking into it in the space, there was just some specific rules around it. Now we're ready to begin integrating Apple Pay. It's just a matter of making sure it connects with our ledger much better so that yeah. reporting-wise, it's like clean, it's straightforward, you know exactly uh, what was from credit card, what was from Apple Pay, et cetera. Yeah, because over the last year and a half since COVID has hit, I mean, like, I literally use Apple Pay 96% yeah. of the time. The yeah. only other 4% is like when I'm Venmoing the guy who sells fruit on my street or, right, right. you know, the one time they don't take it. Yeah. And I like literally I've, I've lost my credit card for weeks knowing it's at home, but having no idea where it is <laughs> and being totally be comfortable about it. Right. Yeah. You know, it's so incredible. The fintech space has evolved so much. And yeah. 
um, it's, it's good and bad, uh, like in the sense that uh, it's sometimes not as inclusive. I mean, we've had a lot of challenges in the fintech space. We've had a lot of challenges with uh, just payment processors have just offboarded us. And it's really frustrating because usually this, the, the answer we get is, hey, we're leaving the crowdfunding vertical. But then we know that they service other platforms. Ugh. And so, uh, you know, just the, the, the fintech space institutionally is very discriminatory. But it's, it's slowly changing, but it makes it so much more challenging to offer the very best for our community. Yeah, but money talks. I mean, when you have 250 million raised, people are like, oh, I don't care if I'm racist. Like, that's a lot of money to go through our processing system. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you have to change the equation where you're seeing more as an opportunity than a risk. Right. And, and you know, like something, a, pers- a very personal question I have for you is, so like I'm a hijabi. I think I'm a first. I think you're a first. I haven't looked into it, but I'm pretty sure I'm first. But like, I don't, I don't have time to kind of play the first role. And I, it's not really my desire or ambition at this moment, right? Mm-hmm. The first is like, I have yet to meet a hijabi that's raised over five, 10, 20 million. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hope there are more. Like personally, I really hope, but, but venture capital, like your experience was, is a very, very almost siloed secretive space Mm. with very limited access. Mm. Um, And so like, I think about this a lot, right? Because when I'm on, I'm on TikTok, that's where I like make career stuff. And I haven't even tried career stuff on Instagram because my Instagram is just like kind of identity list. Like I don't really put founder stuff there because I just don't really have time to formulate these narratives about how, what it takes to build a company. Um, I I sometimes put family stuff because my kids are cute. Mashallah. And sometimes I look good and like fashion, but I, I don't have time. Like, I'm just not that cute anymore these days either. So I think about this, right? And so like people want to put me in the hijabi influencer space, but or like, I guess I wouldn't be that big of an influencer, but I'm not. Like, I'm really just not, right? I, I'm not influencing anybody's lifestyle. I know a lot about technology, but I also haven't committed to making that my like persona outside of TikTok where I just give random career advice. Mm. Um, and it's just a choice. Like I'm, I'm choosing not to invest in this. Okay. How do I take advantage of this almost tokenization and the lack of a certain type, but also in a good way where I can inspire other women to follow suit. Right. And so you probably have a similar decision. You, you also have a lot of influence. You have also built a hundred person company. Like that's a lot on your shoulders. My sense is since we haven't met, you maintain a very low profile. I feel like we would have definitely met if, if, if you didn't, um, but I'm curious to know how you navigate that mentally, especially at a time where this really is the era of hijabi firsts. Like they are mm. popping off. They get mm. a lot of attention and a lot of fame. And sometimes people claim it when they aren't first and they run mm. with it, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's something I've, I've asked, I've, I've sort of thought about, right? Um, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and, and twofold. One, part of it is just time-wise, like you're so busy building your company and the and a, and and not just a com- your company, but something that you want to make sure is of incredible value to the community that you're serving, right? That it, it leaves very little time to focus on your personal branding, right? Yeah. And, and I remember, like, I was doing another, I was doing another podcast, and they're like, "Where can people find you?" And I was like, uh, "LinkedIn." <laughs> and they're like, "Whoa, that's a first. And I was like, "I'm sorry, I don't really feel like I, I don't feel like I'm much of a millennial there." Um, in terms of just, it's, it's hard. It's hard. You know, I, I grew up in the middle of seven. So before I got married, when I came home, I'd ask like seven people how their day was. And that alone was <laughs> where a lot of, I'm one of six. Yeah. So, so, so part of it is there's this challenge of it's, it's, you don't really have much room to focus on your personal brand. Right. 
but then at some point you get to uh, a point where, um, like for example, recently uh, Inc. Magazine had me listed as their top uh, female founders for 2020, right? And it was a big deal because that was the first time uh, people had seen like a Muslim woman that's visibly Muslim woman on the on the kind of the front of the magazine in terms of uh, some of the founders they had listed there. And it was, I was like very nonchalant about it, but I realized that that such sends such a powerful image to a lot of young Muslim girls that just never totally. had, a, never had that example. I mean, I'm, even me, I remember growing up, like I remember being really frustrated about the narratives that we had about Muslim women in the Muslim community, but then also outside the Muslim community and none of them felt right. And so I, I literally got like a poster board and I would collect pictures of incredible Muslim women that I thought were so cool some of which I got the chance to work with years later. Like, it's crazy. And I would put, I, I had this in my room and, and I internalized that over the years. And my younger sisters, I have younger twin sisters growing up would see this and they'd be like, oh, that, that, this lady's my favorite, right? And so I realized like, that's the equivalent of that today, right? Hmm. Um, and so I recognize that there is a need to uh, share our story um, just so people it's hard to move towards something that you, unless you know it's possible. Right. But at the same time, it's just challenging with everything else going on in terms of just building what you're building. Um, and, uh, I don't have an answer to that. I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's like you kind of doing it because you know, it's good for others to see that image, but not necessarily because you might, at least for me that I like necessarily enjoy that per se. You know, it's funny because I don't have an answer for it either. Like when I think about my social media strategically, like it's sloppy, right? It, it's it's a sloppy and I'm okay with it. It doesn't even bother me that it's sloppy, but it's like if you were to look at it, you wouldn't really figure out what I did. And it's certainly not due, a lot, due to a lack of pride. Alhamdulillah, I'm very proud of where I am, but that's time consuming. And I have two freaking amazing, not freaking, but like when I said time consuming, kids are freaking time consuming, right? I have two freaking kids that are super time consuming that I'm right. obviously obsessed with. Um, in the most positive way, I have I have the company that I'm looking after. But you, you're right, because right now there's this dichotomy of good Muslim, bad Muslim. And when we put ourselves out there, we present these, you know, narratives outside the bounds of xenophobia, outside the bounds of Islamophobia. So it's a kind of a broader version of ourself, our self being like the royal us, meaning like the Muslim woman who chooses to cover. Um, and again, like no knocks against women who don't wear hijab. I respect it. I'm, I'm here for choice, but it is a different journey when somebody wants to paint you one way and you're like, no, I'm actually the best COO in, you know, the, the crowdfunding space or whatever. Right. Like, so why don't you get me on a stage about being a COO? And, and so it's something I think about. I, I just haven't had the time to answer it. Every time I have a kid, I'm like, I'm going to think through this and answer it during maternity leave. I can <laughs> confirm that it's never happened. Okay, good. I was wondering about that. I was like, is maternity leave where I can no, take some time to answer some good not questions? A okay. <laughs> no, like really, truly the stupid. I thought I'd be like painting and like, you know, kind of, you know, spending time with my kid and feeling myself. No, dude, you're like covered in vomit and not sleeping. You're probably throwing up most of the time. And not <laughs> just, like, you're like, this kid just pooped on me. What? No, I don't have time to think about this. And so um, anyways, it's interesting. And I'm, I'm going to check in with you on a personal level on that question because I think we'll be answering it and navigating it together. And, and even like in the space of podcasts that are professional women podcasts, Muslim women come on to talk about identity, which is fine, right? Like it's important, but there still is that lack of recognition in the leadership space. And that's actually one of the motives for the podcast, for this podcast. Like 
I'm always like, man, I'm going to like end the season soon because I just don't have time for this. But the flip side of me is like, no, like this is an obligation. Like I would rather do this at this moment than kind of figure out my personal brand because I want the younger girls to hear it and boys. But like the younger folk need to know, like it wasn't easy, but we're here. Right, right. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's tough because I I think there's this, initially there was this fear too, I knew for for me of, um, you can only build so many things at one time, right? And it's like, you can build a personal brand, right? But you can build a product, you can build an organization that outlasts that and and really creates, it's more of a legacy than just your personal brand, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it's just, it, it does feel like, there are a lot of avenues to make the personal brand happen, but I I have seen cases of companies where the founders were so focused on that personal brand, but ultimately their company was in shambles because they I've weren't really seen that they, a lot. They, they weren't really focused on really supporting their team and growing their team and stewarding their team and and the leadership needed there. Yeah, this the speaker circuit is time consuming. Like it's not easy getting exactly. you know getting on a plane, getting on a stage is not easy. But it's an interesting question. I, like I said, we should continue this discussion and you know even kind of share this discussion as it progresses because there there's like the the shiny easy object, which is like oh you know I'm gonna kind of take advantage of this tokenization and elevate myself and people need to hear it. Then there's the flip side, which is like I just don't have time, so I'm gonna right. have a sloppy brand and I'm okay with that. Right. Um, I'll, I'll say one last thought on that. Which at some point though, I talked to you know Chris and I talked about Salah and Arma, which is at some point you're seen as a thought leader and when you're seen as a thought leader to make sure that you do that making sure that you have a voice that is uh important within the conversations that are happening and that's where i feel it is important to kind of say hey you know what i am going to take the microphone to be able to share what good looks like here, right? Or share a better way out. And, and especially when you feel very strongly about something or how should, something should be done, it's tricky one to figure out when those moments are. Um, but at some point, I think that, and I hear this all the time, like people are craving that thought leadership and to be able to provide that sometimes is that kind of uh, community charity in a way. Yeah, no, I feel that. And, and even as I think about my mom, like, my mom really developed a whole community on her back, built a school. Like she's just done so much and she is the least humble, gra- braggy person. In fact, I recorded a whole podcast with her and she refuses to let me post it. She's like, I'm too low key. I'm like, you're driving me crazy. Like you've done the dopest stuff. Just let me post it. And she's like, absolutely not. So right. that's that. But uh, <laughs> and she's also, yeah, my mom is funny. But uh, okay. So I guess my final question before I ask where people can find you. So, you know, you better drum up that LinkedIn rec. Is uh, where where do you want to take the company? Yeah, you know, it's there's two questions to that. There's where I want to go and where I want to take the company, right? And where I envision taking launch good, the, the, what I see as a short term is to get to 1 billion raised annually, right? Because that shows, one, a level of strength uh, for all of the, payment processors that have given us trouble off board of this. That happened to us three times. It's very disruptive to us. Oh my gosh. And, and sometimes like a few days before Ramadan, right? Ugh. And, and so this is, it's a very traumatic experience for us. It still is. Um, but to be able to get to 1 billion raised, again, puts us in that league of GoFundMe and really sends a strong signal. Like the Muslim community is an incredible community. And this is what our dollars together look like, right? Whether it's Silicon Valley or others, uh, being able to see that this is a community worth investing in. So that's the short term. 
but beyond that, we really want to continue to just build products for gummies, this global, urban, educated, English-speaking Muslim community. Uh, we believe we have incredible values. We, we want to expand beyond crowdfunding. It's still a little bit unclear what that looks like. It may be another social media app. It may be uh, a marketplace dedicated to the Muslim community. Uh, it may be a fintech. Uh, mm. If you can't beat them, join them. That's your own favorite. your own payment platform. That's what I'm gunning for. Yeah, yeah. That's that's my personal favorite. And so so that's where we really envision long term launch good being in terms of just if you you can build all these amazing platforms for the Muslim community, but if you don't own your payment rails, then you don't really have you you have no power there. You don't really have access uh, with to the transfer. You don't have access to anything. And so eventually, maybe even becoming your own fintech. Well, you know, an observation is somebody who spends, you know, knows, has gotten to know venture pretty well is the fintechs, their skill of raising is just crazy and their skill of valuation is crazy because when they're successful, they are successful. Yeah. Yeah. And it might mean a different strategy. It might mean we uh, break our rule about bootstrapping to, to do right. that. Right. And so we're, we're not opposed to that. And on the other hand, personally, I want to be like the uh, Jeddah, the grandma of Launchgood, where I'm not, you know, you get to a point where you build a culture and a community and a team that just outlives you, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that what we've done, the foundation becomes so contagious, it's integrated. I'm still needed today, every day on the day-to-day, -day, but I want to get to a point where amazing work happens and I, I didn't have anything to do with it. Um, and that to me is like true sustainability. Yeah, no, it, it sounds amazing. And being able to be a piece of all these projects that happen really sounds amazing. I'm, I'm so, so happy we connected, Amani, and I hope we stay in touch because it seems like we have a lot in common. Who knew? Um, and where, where can people find you? Oh, that question. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I do have an Instagram. I am on Facebook. I am on LinkedIn. That's pretty much it. Um, you can also email me. I actually check my email the most thing I do than all three of those. So, uh, And you can just find me at my full name, Amani Kalawi. I'm sure it will be uh, written in the title. Um, and, and that's, uh, that's really it. Those are the, those are the three best places to, to get a hold of me. Perfect. I will link all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much. And yeah, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. Leila.